0: I'm going to start this message, uh, this morning's message, a little different, and it's with a a parental guidance warning. Um, This morning, we're going to be talking about the Seventh Commandment, and with that, adultery and some issues related to sex and marriage, and some of these things that we talk about may not be appropriate for younger children. Now, we do have a children's ministry, um, and we always welcome you to have your kids in the service. But this morning, if you have younger children, grade school and younger, that you may, and are here with you in the service, uh, you may want to consider bringing them down for the children's ministry, just again, because of the subjects that we're talking about this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the Seventh Commandment, and uh, the Seventh Commandment is very simple. Many of us know it. It just, Exodus chapter 20, you shall not commit adultery, and, uh, and what that means, and it's, again, there's a lot more to it than what we may originally see. Uh, but let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and to dive into your word. Thank you for the privilege of, this, of truth. Father, that in the midst of a confused culture that you give us truth, that, that transcends time, that is just as relevant and true to us and to our culture as, Father, the, the day it was first given, and then it has ever been. Father, I pray for your blessing in our time. I pray that you would speak through us that share this morning, Father, that you'd help each one of us that are here today, that they have hearts that are open to hear and understand and to respond. Father, even where you may instruct us and even where you may challenge us, I pray now your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think when most people think of the Ten Commandments, they often think of them primarily as ten moral rules that God gives us to live by. And there is a sense that you could say that they are that. Well, it's the seventh commandment, thou, you know, don't commit adultery. Well, that's a moral rule. And, and it is that, but what we're seeing through our study in the Ten Commandments is that all of them are also more than that. We can take each any of the, any of the commandments and we have, and we dive deeper, and we realize that God's not just giving us a commandment about what we do. He's always teaching us something about who he wants us to be. He's teaching us something about our heart, not just our behavior. And so with each commandment, we've dug more deeply into that. I'll tell you next week we're gonna dig a lot more deeply into this commandment on that issue. Not just only what does God want us to do or not do, who does God want us to be? But we're also seeing that all of them are also dealing with a foundational truth, a principle that He wants us to understand that, that literally that we see life differently. That early in the in the in the uh series, we'd even use Jenga as an example, that when you think of a Jenga tower, and you have these blocks that are at the bottom that that are foundational, if you remove the block, the tower falls. And In some ways, that's what these principles are. They're foundational blocks that God gives us, that when we leave them in, they allow us to build a healthy life, a healthy culture. When we forget them, when we break them, when we walk away from them, we've taken the foundation out, and in time, the tower is going to fall. So we're looking at this commandment. What are the foundational principles? What are are the ideas that are behind the seventh commandment? Let me just throw out a couple, just an introduction to what we're going to talk about today. One of the foundational principles is that when we look at the way that our our culture views sex and sexuality, it's often treated in a very light way uh, so that when you think about the way that our culture views it, it's like, okay, well, we live in what people call the hookup culture, and you have apps like Tinder where you just meet somebody and you sleep with them, and, or the way that it's presented in the culture, if you date somebody for any period of time, of course you're going to have sex. Well, because it's just something that you do. It's, it's, it's taken lightly. And yet, you've got to look at when the Bible speaks about it, it doesn't by any means take it lightly. We have this foundational commandment saying, this is a very serious thing before God. That, that we've got to look at it and see that the Bible teaches that sex is this powerful gift of God that, that can build, that can be a wonderful blessing, or that at the same point it can destroy. I read one person and they talked about the example that if you think of fire, and fire especially throughout much of human history, um, you know, fire is what used to heat the home. Fire is what used to cook food. It was something that was an incredible tool, a wonderful blessing. But when you think of fire, you have a fireplace where the fire belongs. And if you keep the fire in the fireplace that it was designed for, it's an incredible tool. If it gets outside of what it was designed to do, suddenly that fire becomes something that can destroy your home, can destroy a forest. And that's the same thing is true here, that that if we take this wonderful gift, but if that fire leaves the boundaries of God's design... It can become something that burns our soul in such a way that causes disaster. Well, the second principle is, is even building off of that. When you look at what the Bible teaches, if I were to go out and ask 100 people at random, you know, what does the Bible teach about sex and sexuality? I think that most would come back and say, well, it's against it. You know, it's, it gives us a bunch of rules of what we can't do. And we think in negative terms. But that's a very, very incomplete view of what the Bible teaches. When you look at all the Bible teaches, God isn't anti-sex. He's pro-marriage. He's by no means is everything that the Bible teaches against sex and sexuality. In fact, what we see is that the Bible teaches that God has created this wonderful, wonderful gift of marriage, and he has given us the gift of sex within marriage, and he says, okay, this is so wonderful that I want to give restrictions to keep you from ruining the wonderful design that I've given you. And if you take it outside of that, it's, going to, it's not that God's keeping you some, from th- something good and pleasurable. It's actually saying, this is where it's designed to be best, and I want to keep you from, from ruining anything. It's, he's pro-marriage. And the restrictions that we have is actually God building up the intimate relationships he's designed us for. And once we understand that, we realize that not only is he pro-marriage, but he is then for pleasurable intimacy within that marriage that he's the one that created sex, he's the one that made it pleasurable. In fact, when you read the Bible, there are times that it, it's very explicit even in some of the language it uses. Look, let me go to uh, Proverbs chapter five. Speaking of, of sex and sexual um, intimacy, here's what Proverbs says. Drink water, speaking now of sexual intimacy, from your own cistern, speaking of within your wife. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the life of your youth. Now look at how it gets even more explicit. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now some people would say, well, you know, you, you know, evangelicals, you believe in literal interpretation. and Well, we do. This is literal. If you take it literally, that's a pretty good interpretation. I mean, that's, that, what that says is really beautiful. And, and I was looking at this and even thinking about, okay, now, I've, I've seen before where the Bible says that it's okay, but I'm looking at this and saying, when it says, let her breast fill you at all times, be intoxicated with her love. Is that like, not only saying it's okay to be, but as an instruction, if we're married and we're young enough to be able to enjoy, you know, and healthy enough to enjoy a sexual relationship, that God is actually saying, this is something I want you to do. He's instructing us. And, and I was struggling with this. Even this week, and thinking about it, and and I just so happened to know someone who studies this issue an awful lot. Um, my sister Julie Slattery is involved in the ministry, and uh, and she writes books on this and and speaks on it. So I called her up and I said, "Well, I'm thinking about this. What does it mean? And and is God instructing us?" And so we started talking, and she said, "Actually, I just wrote a book about this. Just submitted it to my publisher." And and uh, and so we started talking, and and she said, "Well, I'm here this weekend." And and I said, well, either I could ask her to send me the book and I can read it in the next couple days or I can get the author. I think that's a whole lot better. And uh, so she has agreed to come and to share with us this evening. And, uh, and I, I want to thank Julie. Julie. Dr. Julie Slattery, if you don't know, is the founder and our co-founder and president of Authentic Intimacy, mm-hmm. dealing with issues of sexuality and really being on the front lines and speaking on some really, really tough subjects. And we are really blessed that you're even in town you have been, this is your busy season. You've been traveling, speaking in, uh, throughout the country. You just this week put out a new book, uh, Finding the Hero and Your Husband uh, revisit, Revisited, a tremendous book, highly recommend it. Um, and, uh, and so you've been really busy on the radio and doing all kinds of things. And so somehow you found time to, to be here with us. And so I want to thank you for doing that. Sure. And, I uh, was going to
1: be here anyway. So, yeah, this yeah. so
0: <laughs> yeah. you know, to, to have her part of our church community is just such a blessing. And um, now you are, this is a book that just came out this week. You also have just submitted to your publisher a new book uh, that we were talking about. It's uh, going to be called God, Sex, and Your Marriage. Uh, it's coming out in, the, in June, and it's about the importance of covenant love. And um, and so so I'm looking forward to that one as well. I've, I've gotten some to hear some about it in the last couple of days. And um, now when we talk about this whole idea, you know, one of the things that you say is that even when I talked about you know is it God calling us to pleasure and what are we doing and and you said that you know that we often have the wrong understanding and even the wrong definition of what what makes a great sex life of mm-hmm. of that in a sense I'm asking the wrong question yeah so so how is it that we can get that wrong
1: yeah, um when I ask couples in counseling relationship what what do you think is a great sex life like how would you define that Usually they're like okay well we're We're experiencing pleasure all the time. We're experiencing mutual pleasure. And some of it is that we usually think about sexuality with um, a narrow perspective. A lot of us are thinking about sexuality just from the cultural perspective, which says sex is all about your satisfaction. It's all about mutual pleasure. It's all about whether or not you're getting your needs met. And um, this is certainly the message we get over and over again in culture And it's really being reinforced by um, pornography. Uh, So many of us have been impacted by pornography that trains you to think about yourself as a consumer of sex. And so you bring that mindset into marriage and you think, I should get my needs met how I want them, when I want them met. And so there's this one idea of a great sex life being this mutual compatibility. As a matter of fact, a lot of younger Christians might say, I definitely would want to live with somebody or sleep with somebody before I get married because I want to make sure we're compatible.
0: And there are people that advise that. I've seen Christians that advise that even though it's unbiblical.
1: Right, but they're thinking yeah. about sex with a wrong framework of what do we actually define a healthy sex life as being. I think another kind of script or narrative that we're using sometimes related to what makes a great sex life is we only look at the rules. And so we're saying as long as we avoid sin, as long as we're avoiding... Uh, infidelity, we're avoiding pornography, we're avoiding uh, fornication, all the thou shalt nots, then we should be fine. And couples that have that perspective are not thinking about the fact that God wants them to grow into mature love together. They're just checking boxes of duty and religion and rules. And I think couples that are working from that paradigm, are often struggling with a lot of shame around sexual desire, shame around sexual pleasure. They don't know what it looks like to grow in their sexual love for each other. And so part of what I try to help people realize is that when we look at the whole of Scripture, there's a much fuller picture of what God actually designed sex to be. And, um, and this is a little bit complicated, uh, but it's really understanding that God designed sex to be and marriage as a whole to be a representation of the kind of love that he has for us, of his covenant love. And you can check me out theologically yeah, here, yeah. Mike. No, I
0: agree. Yeah. Well, and even one of the things when you look at and you're talking about consumer, our, our culture generally handles sexuality and treats it as a consumer. You know, that, and the consumer is, okay, I'm trying to, number one, I'm trying to, my wife, my, whoever I'm sleeping with, um, I'm getting something out of them. And not only that, but there's an insecurity because if if I view it as a consumer, well, I'm always there's always a possibility of shopping around. There's always, well, if you're not meeting my needs, is there a better product out there? Is there is there a more fulfilling and whether that's outside of marriage, whether that's pornography, whether that's which is vastly different than this idea of covenant love.
1: Mm-hmm. Um you yeah. know,
0: it's a total, you know. So how is that different? What's covenant love different? Yeah, more? it's
1: really different. It's really the idea that The reason that we're sexual people to start with and the reason that God created marriage is so that we would have a physical way of understanding how he loves us. Uh, So one of the, the ways that I describe this to couples is think about your sex life as a jigsaw puzzle. Now I know that's not very romantic, but just go with me here. So you've got like a 2,000 piece jigsaw puzzle and you can probably identify with thinking, I don't know how these pieces fit together. Like this works, but this piece like, I don't know what to do with that. And, uh, and jigsaw puzzles are infinitely more difficult if you don't have the right picture on the front of the box that you can use as a reference point. So I like to do jigsaw puzzles, especially here in northeastern Ohio in the winter where there's not much more to do. Um, so I will constantly be looking at the front of the puzzle box and say, all right, well, this piece is kind of blue, so I think it goes over here. It gives me a context Now, most married couples are doing this jigsaw puzzle of marriage and sexuality, and they're looking at the wrong picture. They're looking at, why we should always be experiencing pleasure. Uh, We shouldn't have any problems in this area. Or they're looking at, as long as we follow rules, God's going to bless us. And they're not looking at the complete picture, which Paul actually says is Christ's love for the church. If you read through Ephesians chapter 5, it's almost like Paul is saying, When you're working out marriage, look at the front of the jigsaw puzzle. Look at Christ and the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Uh, And so everything about marriage and sexuality is supposed to be this reflection. Uh, And so part of what I was working on through this book is, okay, well, then what does that practically look like? Like, that sounds like a nice or maybe even creepy idea, but how does that physically work with the married couple? How yeah. should that change our definition of wholeness and what it looks like to grow and address real life problems?
0: Well, and I think it's important when, you know, even when I reflected on what we talked about in the last service, it's not just that we've got to look at it and if we don't look at it, we can't put it together. Our culture is giving us a picture and we all have a picture. Every one of us has a picture of sexuality of what we're shooting for. And for many of us, it's a culture that's more, or a picture that's more culturally defined. So if I, if if I don't have a picture, it's going to be hard. If I have the wrong picture, and I continue to try to make something fit that doesn't even, it's, you know, it's it's the wrong picture. It's the wrong jigsaw. I'm going to be con- not only really messed up. I'm going to be super frustrated. Yeah. And, and and I mean that's really significant when we realize in that imagery that we're doing, we're trying to do the wrong picture. And, and then we're surprised that it isn't working and we're frustrated. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, even with all the information we have in our world today about sexuality, you know, sexual pleasure and desire and fulfillment is just on a downward spiral because we're looking at the wrong definition of health and wholeness.
0: And that goes back to, you know, this whole idea of foundational principles. You know, this is one of the blocks at the foundation of the tower. If you take it out, it's going to fall apart. There, there, you can't help but fall apart. That's mm-hmm. just the way that these foundational ideas work. So what is the, you know, we talk about this idea of covenant love and, and starting with God's love for us. And uh, so how do we understand God's covenant love for us in a way that helps us understand something about marriage?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, we have to recognize uh, that word covenant love. And covenant is maybe a word that you hear in church every now and then, but you really don't hear anywhere else other than if you maybe live in a residential area where you have covenants. Like, what does the word covenant mean? And it's saying that marriage is not just a friendship with some romantic and sexual aspects to it. It's a whole different kind of relationship altogether. That it's a relationship based on a commitment, based on a promise, based on your character. And so, God says that He loves us with a covenant love. It's not because of what we've done, it's because of His pursuit of us and His commitment to us, and it's unchanging. So, when we look at God's covenant love and we apply that to marriage, and even if we apply it to sexuality, we see these pillars of what it is to be in covenant relationship with God. And so through this book that I just wrote, I was working on these four pillars of covenant love and what they look like here between me and the Lord, but then what they actually mean as a reflection of his love for me and my husband as we're working out what does healthy sexuality look like. Um, And So the four pillars of covenant love are faithfulness, Uh, which I know we're going to talk about a lot as it relates to the Seventh Commandment. Mm -hmm. And the second one is intimate knowing. And the third one is sacrificial love or sacrificial giving. And the fourth one is passionate celebration, uh, which is the pleasure aspect of sex and marriage. Uh, And you have to have all four of those. You have to be working towards all four of them. If you have three but not the fourth, then it's going to be an unbalanced pursuit of a healthy relationship.
0: You said out of, we need all four, but if there's one that almost comes first, it's that faithfulness.
1: Absolutely. And,
0: uh, now, and I will tell you that I've talked to people that, that would take the teaching of the Seventh Commandment, don't commit adultery, and they would say, well, I've never had an affair, and therefore I've kept the rule. And if we see it as rule, that's it's that simple. But I also think about it, I think about my wedding day, and and I think about, The vows that i made and the main vow i made wasn't i vow not to cheat on you i don't remember that vow in that terms um really what we what i vowed and what we all did i vowed to love honor and cherish and and so so when you think about faithfulness um faithfulness i would think is more than just don't have an affair yeah. Uh, you know, that faithfulness practically, what is it? What's it look like?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, in your vows, you probably also said forsaking all others. Right, you right. Know, so there was that element of what what you're not going towards, but there's also the element of what you're going towards. And on the screen there, you, you see that I've also said faithfulness can be described as holy jealousy. You know, how often do you hear of the word jealousy as being a good thing? But when we read the scriptures, God actually says, I am a jealous God. He says, my name is jealous. And he's talking about this in reference to the covenant he made with Israel and how they were breaking their covenant. They were unfaithful to him.
0: Yeah. When we think of negative, we think of, I'm jealous of. Right. And so God doesn't like look at us and say, I'm jealous of you. You've got something I want. I don't have. And that's not, it's, it's actually right. jealous for. It. It's right. it actually, it's, it's the same right. root as zealous that I'm zealous for something. I, I long to have something and uh, with you. And mm-hmm. I want you to have this, you know, I want you to have this pleasure. And so he's jealous for us.
1: And he's jealous for our exclusive affection. Yeah. Uh, if I were to worship other gods, even if I come to church every Sunday, but my heart is full of idolatry, then He would say, you know, you're, you're breaking our covenant. I promise to be there and to be your God. I will be your God. You will be my people. There's a faithfulness there that is not just in the action, but in the spirit of my heart. He said to the people of Israel, your lips are honoring to me, but your hearts are far from me. And so often this can be the, the case in marriage. We're following the rules of I'm not cheating on my spouse. But our heart, our mind is, man, maybe I should have married somebody else, or I'm more attracted to this person, or you're engaging with pornography, and you're saying, well, I haven't broken the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. But the spirit of the law is, no, actually, you're you're letting your passions and your affections go towards someone else. So the first part of this faithfulness is what what we deny ourselves. We want to go towards our spouse and say, I am forsaking all others, not only in my actions, but in what I'm allowing to live in my heart and my head. I would say another part of faithfulness, and even when we sing this to God, you know, great is our faithfulness, it's the idea that God is safe. Mm. How beautiful is it? And I go back to this in my own walk with the Lord all the time. that He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Like even if you feel like I'm far away, I am there with you. There's nothing you can do to separate me from your love. And that's the kind of love he calls us to have in marriage, to say to each other, uh, life might get messy, but I will not leave you or forsake you. I'm going to be there beside you. I'm for you. And we're going to work on this together instead of having the attitude uh, that so many in our world do of I'm committed as long as it doesn't get too hard or as long as you're performing for me and you're doing the things I want. If, that, if that's not true, then I'm gonna go seek another lover.
0: Well, and I think of some, we talked before about consumer. If, if I view sex as consumer, I'm always looking at it saying, I could choose something better. Part of that is the other side is that if my spouse, if I fear they, they view it, relationships as consumer, then I'm always worried that they might go somewhere else. So then I'm always trying to sell myself. I'm not really relating. I'm not, not, not only not safe, but I'm not real. Mm-hmm. because I'm always feeling like I have to perform, I have to win, I have to sell. And so there's no real no real intimacy, no real life sharing. It's all about somehow trying to sell and present the best image, um, you know, to try to, you know, are you meeting my needs? And, you know, I have to convince you that I'm the best, you know, the best consumer product for you and to meet your needs. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Like when I yeah. talk to couples that are recovering from pornography use, whether it was one or both of them that were engaged in pornography, The two things they'll talk about is getting over that consumer mentality, but then also performance. There's this demand that I always have to perform or I might lose love. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so God has given us this security in our relationship with Him that He's going to love us regardless of what happens or what flaws we have. And He calls us to have that same kind of commitment to one another. And you're absolutely right, Mike. We can't build any further on sexual intimacy until this one is, is solid. And here's what I think is important to realize. All of us have work to do on this faithfulness pillar. Yeah, You know, there are certainly some that, some that would say, my history is a mess. Like, I never have understood faithfulness. I've made mistakes. I've hurt my spouse. I've brought shame into our marriage. And you know you have to work on that. But there are others that just have a heart of, I'm always... I'm always tempted by something else. I'm always comparing you to somebody else. I'm always dissatisfied in who you are. That's an element of violating faithfulness too. It's the pursuit of my heart always being for you and for us and that commitment to be true to my covenant. One way you know I like to think about it is faithfulness is loving with your character. And God says he loves us with his character. And he calls us to be that kind of people within marriage.
0: And so, again, it's, I think so much of that is that, that reversing that consumer faithfulness is to say, I love you not for what you give, um, you know, that there's a sense that, um, again, if I'm a consumer mindset, I love you because, and one of the things I've learned is that my marriage goes a whole lot deeper when there's not the because, and, and, uh, and some of that is even again, it's, it's the, it, it leads into this whole idea of then really knowing the other person, because if if there's always a because, then i'm again I'm not being the real me i'm always i'm always trying to sell i'm always trying to convince i can't ever if i'm not safe then i'm I'm never really vulnerable yeah you can never show your flaws right and mm-hmm. and if i'm not if I'm not safe from my wife, then she's never vulnerable mm-hmm. and then we really never know each other deeply we never are truly intimate at that deepest level,
1: Which yeah absolutely it's you know people couples will read these books on sex and marriage, and they'll they'll work they'll try to work on the pleasure, they'll try to work on the intimacy, but they don't realize that if you don't have the faithfulness in place, you can read all the books you want, mm-hmm. but it's never going to be the kind of soil that's going to produce the the passion and the pleasure and the intimate knowing that you that you're really longing for
0: so so true faithfulness is the found kind of the foundational stone out of the four pillars yes and then but it opens up the doors for the others so you know so the the next one would be that intimate knowing and uh so what is that mm-hmm. and and how does that reframe even the concept of sexual intimacy? Yeah, it
1: totally reframes it. And I think some of what we have to realize that this also is in Scripture. Uh, there is a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that is a lot of times used to describe sexual intimacy in marriage, and it's the word yada. And the word yada is literally translated as intimate knowing. And you took Hebrew. I didn't. But, you know, I just Googled this. <laughs> and, uh, but that word yadah is most often used in the Bible to describe the intimate knowing of God with his people. So in Psalm 139, which is often titled the Psalm of Intimate Knowing, David keeps using this kind of sexual word, uh, this double meaning word of saying God you, you have searched me, you yada me, you yada when I sit and when I rise, before a word is on my tongue, you yada completely. Like you know me as intimately as a husband would know a wife. And then we see it used again when Moses is really wrestling with the Lord and saying, Lord, if you're pleased with me, show me your glory. He literally says, I want to yada your glory. Be that intimate with me. And so our relationship with God wasn't meant to be static. It's not meant to be, oh, I just check the box, I follow the rules. It's meant to be a journey of, do I know the Lord more intimately today than I did a year ago?
0: I I remember, I'm just remembering now, years ago at a previous church, I remember teaching on this one time and talking about using the terms of God wants an intimate relationship with us. And somebody came up to me afterwards, and they were all offended because intimate was this kind of word that has a sexual connotation. And they were so offended that I would use that word to talk about our relationship with God. And, but that's exactly what the Bible does. The Bible, you know, intimate would probably be the closest to that yada that we have, this intimate knowledge, intimate experience. And God uses that terminology of intimacy, uh, not only there, but throughout the Bible. And and it invites us to have that kind of relationship but it's based on him fully knowing us. Um,
1: And it's a pursuit of intimacy. Uh, Again, hopefully you know the Lord more intimately today than you did a year ago. And so the question then is, do you know your spouse more intimately today than you, you did a year ago? Do you know your spouse sexually more intimately today than you did a year ago? And what that means is that this is a journey. And just like our relationship with God it sometimes is the disappointments in the valleys that are the greatest invitation to intimate knowing. So my guess would be if I asked each of you, what, what periods of your life would you say you've grown in intimacy the most with the Lord? You'd probably say it was a hard time. It was during a stage of grief or of loss or a failure when you really pressed into know the Lord and you said, wow, I know him better now because I went through that valley. Well, the same is true potentially with married couples when they experience roadblocks to sexual intimacy. The world would tell you that your sex life is broken, but God would say it's actually in that brokenness that you can get to know each other more intimately and not just be focused on the activity of having sex, but the communication of what does sex mean to you? What What is... brokenness look like for you? Where does this create vulnerability? And in working the last 10 years pretty much exclusively on this topic, what I've learned is that we all have some sexual brokenness and we bring that into marriage. It doesn't go away just because we got married. So there are couples that are dealing with uh, the impact of pornography or uh, they're dealing with infertility or they can't experience pleasure in their sexual relationship. Their bodies aren't cooperating, or maybe you have trauma from your past and sex, uh, brings up that trauma. It's triggering. So instead of keeping the the message of, Oh man, like we're not experiencing pleasure. What about viewing this as an invitation of how do I meet my spouse, even in their wounds and minister to them in their healing journey? And so this reframes so many of the frustrations that couples experience in their sexual relationship, because instead of it being a barrier, it's actually perhaps an open door to a, a different kind of intimacy.
0: I know when I reflect on my own life, my own experience, I would have to say that yeah, in mean, early in marriage, it's like, oh, people tell you're going to be more in love. You know, I, I couldn't imagine being more in love than we were. Um, but in reality, I look back and saying in the relationship in general, but in sexuality especially, I was very much selfish in the consumer. And so, you know, I looked at my, 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 real, my relationship with my wife, and it's what I'm getting. And, and even I'm loving her because, okay, what buttons do I push so that she gives back to me? And in reality, that's, I, I think all of us start there. I was definitely there. But it was in those hardest times when I felt frustrated and, and I didn't feel like, you know, things were, you know, there wasn't the response and the return. That's when God started to teach me to really love her. Because up till then, my love was really not loving and giving to her to meet her needs. It was pushing her buttons to meet my needs. It was really all about consumerism. It was really about my selfish desires. And it wasn't until, you know, that wasn't being met, then God said, okay, are you going to love even if you don't get anything back? Are you going to give simply to give? And that's when I started to learn to love. And I really, really didn't understand what love was until then. And and I could say, yes, I love her far more now um, than I did, you know, the day that we're married. And I I even understand what love is in ways that I couldn't have before.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's not only that you love her more, but you know her more deeply, right? Uh, You know, the wounds, you know, the healing journey and she knows your, and and I love her.
0: And it's, and and even at at times there would be times in earlier in a relationship, she'd say, do you love me in spite of? And, and I would wrongly say certain things along those lines and then i realized no god doesn't call me to love her in spite of he calls me god loves me not in spite of who i am but he loves me for who i am and his love changes me and and so it's not only intimate knowing but knowing and loving in such a way that i embrace all that she is or that she embraces all that i am um even in the hard times
1: yeah and what you're describing there mike i think is so key I think traditionally we've just focused on sexual morality. Like, again, are you breaking the rule of adultery? God is not only concerned with our morality, he's also concerned with our maturity. Mm -hmm. That as we learn to love each other well, we are understanding and embodying more of the way he loves us. He's making us into himself through this puzzle process. Uh, And that's the beautiful thing is he's forming our character as we're developing these pillars in our relationship and marriage. And some of what you're describing goes into that third pillar, which is sacrificial giving. Um, you know, we talk, I talk a lot to single Christians about sexuality. And so often we're telling single Christians uh, the message about how God will bless your, um, your purity or your pursuit of purity, your saying no to sexual desire for the sake of a higher goal. But then I think, man, do we also tell married Christians that? Or have we told them without realizing it that once you get married, all of your sexual desires will be met? It won't require any self-denial on your part. And I I think Christians are really surprised when they get married and they realize, wow, like this isn't what I thought it would be. I feel like I was promised all this pleasure and all this Bliss and it's not there. It's just another level of hard work of getting to know what it is to love my spouse, and my needs aren't all being met. And uh, and so I think this pillar is really key, Mike. When we look at our relationship with God, it was it's based on sacrifice. Like the pinnacle of the Christian faith is the cross, where Jesus came and he gave his life for his bride, and then he says to the church take up your cross now and deny yourself and follow me. And so the Christian life is meant to all be about we love so much that we give of ourselves. And that should also be reflected in the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. Not that I'm coming to marriage saying you must meet these needs or uh, with a selfish perspective, but with actually what does it look like to love you as Christ has loved me in the sexual relationship. And I think that I've I've heard this before, but I think passages like 1 Corinthians 7 have been taken out of context to make people feel like they have a right to demand certain things sexually yeah. within marriage. And that's caused great harm, particularly to women in the church, of feeling like this is a duty and... Um, if I don't do this, then uh, my husband has a right to cheat on me. And so I think we need to press more deeply into what passages like like that are actually teaching.
0: Yeah, and First Corinthians 7, 5, you know, it talks about marriage. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together and state may not tempt you because of lack of self-control. Uh, and, and I've heard that taught. You know, it's kind of like, okay, well, I can expect, you know, you can't do this. One of the foundational rules of interpreting the Bible is that God is always, when I read the Bible, God always speaks to one person, and that's me, the reader. And I can never read the Bible and say, well, God's telling my wife to do this. And, um, and, and a lot of times, this is the way this, is when this one is re- referred to. You know, it's like, well, let me pull this out and tell you what it's telling you. And in reality, this is telling me and when you look at it, I, my understanding of it is it's, it's calling me to pursue my wife intimately. And, and her needs, the way that she's most connected to, isn't the way that I'm most connected to. See, if, if it were all the same, I would well, again, how do I push the button to get what I want? But I have to do the things that aren't natural to me and say, how do I connect to her intimately? How do I love her intimately? How do I speak to her sexuality, not just the physical act? And it's a self-sacrificial thing. And and God never tells me, okay, if you do this, you should be able to expect this. He just says, Are you going to do it? Yeah. And even if it's self-sacrificial, even if it's even if Christ loved me when I didn't love him, even if I feel that's the case, I'm still called to 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 surrender, to pursue uh according to her needs. Mm-hmm. Is that would that be accurate?
1: Yeah, if you even go up a few verses, I don't this, um, this, no, that's all right. This, uh, this translation, what is it? The King James. Yeah, ESV. All right, ESV. They use conjugal rights, which that's an interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, it's <laughs> it says basically um, each man should have his own wife, and each wife, woman, her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, which I don't yeah. know how you would translate that one, but it's really minister to his wife sexually and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I think it's interesting that before, we we usually talk about this passage in terms of the wifely duty passage. That's how I've heard people refer to it. I got to do my wifely duty. But before it talks about a wife's duty sexually, it actually calls the husband to minister to his wife sexually. And when we look at how we're created and just the way female and male sexuality is, women are way more complicated yeah. than men. Can I get an amen? Yeah. I mean. uh, so, uh, so even when we look at the fact that men usually reach their sexual prime in the late teens or the early 20s, and women don't reach their sexual prime until usually the 30s. And so there's this Uh, there's this unveiling of female sexuality that takes time. And what usually happens in marriage is it becomes all about the man's needs because his needs are more evident and he's more vocal about them, typically, not always. Uh, But the relationship starts revolving around this idea that his needs are primary. And so we looked at a passage like this and a wife feels like, wow, this has become a duty for me. When we look at this in light of what Paul's saying and the whole of Scripture, you know, God is really saying, take sexual intimacy as a priority in your marriage. Be working on it. But both of you should minister to each other.
0: And it's going to be different. It's not going to be what I want. It's how do I, how do I minister to her according to her needs, which are radically different than mine.
1: And then when we bring in brokenness, like, yeah. for example, probably about a third of women have experienced sexual trauma. And so they read a verse like this, and they feel like they're traumatized all over again. They're objectified. Instead of it being, no, actually, God is calling the husband to minister to his wife on the healing journey. Uh, How does she become sexually whole? Not just by focusing on activity, what they're doing with their bodies, but what does it look like to grow in safety and in healing? Uh, And so I think it's really important that we recognize That when we look at all of Scripture, Christ's love for us is all about him laying himself down for us. And that's what he calls us to do in marriage, including the sexual relationship. You know, I know couples where uh, they will abstain sexually for months because one of them is on a healing journey. And that's what I think even Paul is saying here, that sometimes you abstain not just because you're praying for the person on the prayer list, but because you're praying that God would bring healing and redemption, even with this, when within this intimate part of your marriage.
0: Yeah, but there's also a sense that when you see this throughout Scripture, that God calls us to self self sacrifice. But there's a fruit of self sacrifice of joy, mm-hmm. and I mean I, another different one that I shared this first service, but I think of uh, Hebrews. You know, in Hebrews 12, uh, 12, it talks about Jesus who endured the cross, scorning his shame. Why? For the joy set before him. That there's a sense that even Jesus, why did he go through sacrifice? Because there was a joy set before him. And so likewise, why do we self-sacrifice? Because there's a joy, uh, there's a, God blesses. It's not like, okay, well, I'm going to be miserable and serve my wife and, you know, just expect that. No, I serve because that's, because God in some ways there's a blessing that comes from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that kind of leads, from, you know, sacrificial giving leads to that fourth pair, uh, pair, uh, pillar of yeah. uh, passion celebration. And, yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, it really does. And it's the idea that sexual passion is the celebration of all the work that you do in covenant. Uh, it's the celebration of the commitment you have to each other, of the intimate, knowing that you're growing in, of learning to sacrifice for each other. And then there's a time to have a party, and God made it so that... Sex is meant to be very pleasurable, and as we work through the barriers that keep us from experiencing that, uh, there's a greater freedom and a greater wholeness and a greater celebration.
0: And if I've got, going back to the Proverbs passage, God wants us in time to pursue that. That's
1: actually not only something God
0: says is okay, he says it's something
1: good. Yeah, if you, I don't know if you're preaching on it next week, but Song of Solomon, it's not just for the guy, it's for the woman, like, the husband and the wife are both fully pursuing sexual passion within their marriage. They're overcoming the barriers so that they can have a true celebration.
0: So now, when you you look at that, you know pleasure is important, but a lot of people struggle with that. Mm-hmm. So how you know why is it important? How do we the people that struggle with that idea? How do you how do we process that?
1: Yeah, I think part of it is recognizing that we have a, a bad understanding of sexual pleasure in marriage. Because we've seen how distorted it becomes through the cultural misuse of pleasure, and through pornography, pornography through affairs, through lust, and so you know, there's some cases where, for example, I talk to people who have gone through addiction recovery, and they're afraid of sexual pleasure because they're like, I associate that with shame, I associate that with my sin. But recognizing when these other three pillars are in covenant, it keeps pleasure a safe pursuit and a good pursuit and a godly pursuit. And I think it's also recognizing that, again, we've got to look at this, the puzzle box. Like, what would our Christian life be like if we never celebrated our love for God? Some of what we do here every Sunday is the worship, and the worship isn't just the warm up for the message. It's our expressing our passionate love for God. It's us experiencing intimacy with him together. And so there there has to be a place of this joyful celebration of the love that we have with him. And God says the same is true in marriage. You should laugh together and enjoy each other and drink. In Song of Solomon, God says, "Enjoyful to the fullness, eat and drink, O lovers. This is what I created this for. Yeah.
0: And, and, And if you go back to our relationship with God, the more I've studied it and understood, it. our primary motivation in a relationship with God should be to pursue joy with Him. Mm-hmm. That I enjoy Him, and that you know that that's that's that even causes me to deny myself because I'm pursuing something else. And so there's a sense that there's a joy that God wants, an enjoyment that God wants that He's honored by.
1: Yeah, yeah. God so. finds pleasure in our pleasure. Yeah, um, healthy and holy pleasures that He created us to experience. Now let me ask
0: just as, as we close. Any words of advice or counsel, uh, you know, to the congregation here?
1: Yeah, I'd say, first of all, thanks for bearing with us. I know you're usually not used to coming to Sunday church and hearing a, a talk on sexual intimacy and in marriage. And some of you are singles. And I think it's really important also for single Christians to know what's on the front of the puzzle box and the intimacy that we pursue with God. But I also want to acknowledge that talking about these issues can stir up things in your life. It can stir up things in your relationship where you're like, wow, we have a lot to talk about, uh, or we're recognizing why we experience so much brokenness in our marriage, or maybe it's triggering things from your past. And that's normal. uh, uh, But the next step is, okay, Lord— how can I take what you're bringing to the surface and begin walking towards wholeness and healing? And that's, I know, something that you as a church body want to be part of helping. It's discipleship, but also you know, God has provided counselors who specialize in marriage and sexual healing and trauma recovery and addiction recovery. And my encouragement to you would be um, take that next step, whatever that might be, to pursue wholeness. Uh, the more I am in this ministry, the more I realize uh, like we all have sexual brokenness and we all need to be pursuing what it is and to have God really redeem those areas of our lives.
0: And there's sometimes a uh, stigma that people are afraid to pursue help. And one of the things that I, we've talked about this a little bit, you know, I, I think there are two kind of people. It's not that they're broken people and unbroken people. They're broken people that get help and broken people who don't get help. And, um, and any, any good marriage... I've I've learned this, and I've never met somebody that I'd say they have a great marriage. They didn't have some kind of counseling along the way, and so I know I've pursued it. I, I know you have, you know that that we're healthy in part because we have tried to get other people to help us because I'm, you know I'm, I'm I can't see the things that I'm blind to. So
1: yeah, yeah, and these are difficult areas yeah. to navigate. Sometimes even if you bring it up within your marriage relationship, uh, you're you're hurting each other because. It's so triggering. And so if you find yourself in that situation, please reach out to somebody here at the church um, or to get a referral uh, to go through some counseling. Or you like got
0: got Authentic Intimacy, great resource online. Yes. Uh, some really great books. And lots some, of
1: studies and uh, other. Podcasts, mm-hmm. and great
0: resources that you help make available as well. Thanks. And uh, So, well, thank you so very much for being here with us today. Thank you for your ministry for all that you do, and again, for sharing that with with us here. Let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the privilege of this time and the privilege of being able to talk about a difficult, but very relevant subject. Father, I thank you that in the midst of a culture that is so incredibly confused, that, Father, that you give truth that stands the test of time, that, Father, this is just as true as it has ever been in any time in history. Father, we desperately need your truth. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to understand these ideas, apply them to our lives. Father, I pray especially for those that have come in, Father, that are, that are dealing with brokenness within the marriage, that are dealing with confusion on this issue. Father, I pray for people that maybe right now that are involved in inappropriate relationships and they know it and uh, they don't know how to get out. Father, I pray that uh, for those that are, that are scarred, Father, for those that, that need help to deal with uh, past abuse and past betrayal. Father, that you would allow this to be the beginning of a healing process. Father, that you'd allow us to be able to not only understand these ideas, but grow in such a way that we would have character and relationships that would be an example that the rest of the world wants to follow. Father, I pray your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much. God bless you. Have a great Lord's Day.